This podcast is supported by Red Energy, powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Red is a hundred percent Australian owned and local. Phone one three one eight zero six. I mean, for goodness sake, Andrew and everybody, let's just try and abide by the rules, listen to the compelling international medical advice, as you say, Caro, and let's just get on with it so we can get out there again. Further embarrassment and really very disturbing was the news that they'd been um, forcing Indigenous footballers and staff and their families arriving in Queensland to live in hubs to have this pneumococcal vaccination, which white players were not required to have. Every decent house should have have a good room, Caro, I believe. <laughs> yeah, well, at this rate, I'm going to have several, but people won't be allowed to go into them, so it probably won't be very welcoming. And the children will never be allowed to come back. <laughs> the caption that the Herald Sun put was Miss Piggy. Honestly, I was shattered. And, you know, I have naturally curly hair. Maybe I did look a bit like Miss Piggy. I don't know, but I thought that was so mean. And never forgive the Herald Sun. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome everyone to episode 136 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here in lockdown with my dear friend, Corrie Perkin, the bookseller, who is still managing to run a vibrant business despite everything. Hi there, Corrie. Hello, Caro. Hello, everybody. Uh, I don't know about vibrant. I don't think anybody's feeling vibrant in this particular, what is it, week three of lockdown mark two? Yeah, but I've lost count. No, I'm calling it week three, even though, yeah, I'm calling it week three. It is week three. And um, I think when we get to the start of week six, we'll be happy because it's mid. it'll end midweek. And if it does end, obviously. Corrie, um, you're zooming in from Christmas book buying at home. Um, we need to thank our wonderful sponsor, Red Energy, for all the support they've given us, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Um, Corrie, we have got so much to talk about. Leonie McCarthy, though, one of our lovely listeners, enjoyed my tantrum story, made her feel so much better um, for the occasional tantrum she has when the blokes just don't get it and comes home with something completely different from what we request. Don't we know about that, Corrie? We do, and... Um Yes, yet again, another jar of pickles made its way home on the weekend. And I just had to laugh because I said, I've just been talking about this with Caro. I think that's the fifth jar. How many pickles can one family eat during lockdown? I have no idea. Caro, lots of um, lovely messages. We put out a bit of a straw poll last week. Will people be buying books at Christmas? And so many people sent lovely messages and people visited the shop saying, yes, we think books are the perfect gift. So thanks, everyone. I'm not sure whether it's going to help me today or tomorrow as I spend thousands of dollars on books for October, November. But look, he's hoping. But thanks to everyone for their feedback. And thanks to Gina Livingston One, who did run a wonderful <coughs> bookshop in, in regional New South Wales. Um, so lovely to hear our cheerful chatter in uncertain times. Corrie, order lots of books. She orders you to do. She also enjoyed the Neil Perry tuna pasta last Sunday night. I made a cracker out of um, Good Weekend this weekend, which I'll talk about in a moment. So delicious. Thank you for brightening up our days. Thank you, Gina. And Lucy Race enjoyed the British Cop Show chat. She's obsessed as well. Devoured Shetland, Marcella, Marcella, and is now on to season five of Line of Duty. So, Corrie, there's someone to discuss season two with. Yes. Well, um, I also, we had our Zoom book club, Caro. I know you were unavailable last night, but um, our 
yours and my particular gang that's been going for over 25 years, we had our Zoom book club and there was, I discovered somebody who's also watched the in the line of duty all series, all episodes, and is desperate to help me through my quagmire of what happened at the end of series two. Now, Corrie, how is your July challenge going? We've only got a week to go or just over, so I'm interested. Well, it's it feels a bit odd, Caro, because I, I kind of feel like this has been a three-week July. I'm not sure really what happened, but I finished, uh, as, as you know, I was attacking the pile of books beside the bed. That was my July challenge. I finished the Kate Grenville um which I will speak about in uh, BSF a bit later in the show. Absolutely wonderful. The manuscript had been sitting beside my bed for a couple of months, so I did that. And then I'm halfway through a really wonderful book, which I actually realised, Caro, I found the bookmark from Shakespeare & Co. in Paris, and the book is Amateurs in Eden, the story of a bohemian marriage, Nancy and Lawrence Durrell. And as we know, Lawrence was the oldest child of the Durrells who went to live in Corfu. And this is the story of his first marriage to Nancy. Uh, really interesting. Lots of, I mean, an extraordinary backup cast um, from Henry Miller, who they meet in Paris, to all sorts of different people. Their marriage went south uh, after about 10 years. And this memoir is written by her daughter, um, who is herself, Joanna Hodgkin, is actually a, a renowned biographer and writer. This book came out about eight years ago, loving it, and um, yet yeah, highly recommend if anybody's looking for a really good literary uh, bio with a bit of sex and sauciness added in. What about you? How's your challenge? I think before I do, I think we need to quote my son deep dive into Lawrence at some point. You know, I keep attempting the Alexandra Quartet. I am going to complete it. I've only done Justine. I think he read, not only did his, that marriage go south, I think a lot in his life went south late in well, life and some very um, concerning stories about the old Lawrence. Yes, well, there was also the story that he had um, he had had a an inappropriate relationship with one of his daughters, um, yep. who later not Joanna stressing, um, but uh, the and the daughter committed suicide um, when she was in her twenties or thirties. So we'll never really get to the bottom of that. But look, uh, Lawrence was a wonderful writer. I agree, and um, uh, gosh, Carol, you will love this book. It's really uh, it's really hot to trot. So what about you? What are you up to? Well. Corrie, the home improvements are racing along at the speed of sound, faster than. Um, I have created, it's very sad that Clem has moved out and I'm missing her, but she's having a lovely time in a new pad and her room has become a good room. I completely revamped it over the weekend. I threw out things. I found old things. I found new homes for things. I cleared out stuff downstairs to go upstairs. The bookshelves have been completed. They just need to be painted and I'm not going to be doing that. So, you know, I had a bit of a saga with these beautiful pineapple knobs that have been in my family for years. Mum said she had them. Turns out she gave them to my sister, but she forgot. So now they're in Sydney. So what are are the handles going to be on the new cupboards? I don't know. But I've just got rid of so much stuff, Corrie, and I'm really excited. I'm just really enjoying the home improvement. Every decent house should have a good room, Caro, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm going to have – at this rate, I'm going to have several, but people won't be allowed to go into them, so it probably won't be very welcoming. Anyway – And the children will never be allowed to come back. (laughs) Now, Corrie, we need to discuss the politics of masks. This has been the big news since we last met last week. I'm happy to report that Brendan – 
follow the YouTube um, that everyone's been looking at and has made several masks out of old socks. What to do with your old socks? We've finally found a solution. It really works because the knobby part that your heel goes into becomes a nose covering and they really work. I, sp- I did my first uh, walk yesterday wearing a mask. Not great with sunglasses because they fog up or any glasses really. Have to sort that one out. Bit like a snorkel. As I, my... have, I have a GLT on that. I was listening to our brother podcast uh, The Sounding Board with Hutchie and Damo yesterday as I was walking and um, they were talking about, uh, of course Damien Barrett wears glasses, spectacles as we know and he was talking about, he's had so many people tell him how to not fog up. Well, playing golf yesterday discussing this very issue with a friend she's given me a good tip so everybody tune into glt we might just have the solution for you but look caro the thing with masks is i kind of think why did they why did they get why did the government give us three days um to get around to it uh probably yes people like brendan needed to make them or people like me needed to buy them at the at the chemist shop but have a bit of practice give them a run in yeah, but why did but why did people not start wearing them from from the moment that Daniel Andrews announced that Victoria Melbourne people were going to have to wear masks? I went up to the supermarket yesterday, Caro, with my mask on, and I reckon probably twenty, maybe thirty percent of the people in the supermarket had their mask on. I felt like saying. What's the difference in the 24 hours? Are you just kind of hoping that this is the last hurrah, you know, summer's last hurrah? Well, I think that it's a bit like lockdown. They always give you a bit of notice to get used to things. I can understand that. I mean, we don't live in a you know police state after all. It is a state of emergency, but I think it's, I think it's about people getting used to it. I'm astounded, astounded that people keep saying, I'm not going to wear them. This is a disgrace. You know, Andrew Bolt's come out and written this... He's turned it into a political issue, which I, I don't understand. People are saying, oh, there's no medical evidence. We have to believe what our chief, medical of- our chief health officer is telling us. We have to believe the international evidence. And, you know, I, I think the best message has been, you know, comparing it to wearing a seatbelt or obeying the speed limit. It's not that hard. It is actually not that hard to wear a mask if we think it's going to do some good. I'll do anything to get these freaking numbers down. I don't know about you. No, I, I totally agree because I want to go out again and I want people to stop getting sick and I want the older folk to, to not die. I don't, want to, I don't want us to lose these people in nursing homes. And I tell you what, people like Andrew Bolt and others, I've heard people say that it is against their, um, their, their rights to, to, uh, to have to wear a mask. It's, you know, it's freedom of choice. It's that sort of thing. It's actually not. And I, I refer Andrew Bolt and all of those people to Four Corners on Monday night this week, which was an extraordinary documentary, which followed. It's the sort of thing that your son, Ned Caro should be making. It, it was so compelling and he should have a look at it too. They went to a hospital in northern Italy and they followed the life of a doctor. Her name is Francesca. I can't recall her surname. Her family life, they're all in lockdown and going to the hospital every day, day after day after day and watching people die and the medical staff um, acquiring coronavirus. Really extraordinary how, uh, how, um, how this pandemic just spreads. It's just so prevalent. And I was, it was a brilliant documentary because it just brought home the fact that if you don't wear a mask, you've got double the chance of picking up this terrible, terrible disease. 
Well, because I've been working all year with people wearing masks, particularly in um, hair and makeup, obviously, and in wardrobe at Channel Nine, and now the production crew, I'm getting used to it. I look. Culturally, it's just not Australian, is it? It's not something that we've ever been into, we've ever done. We've always looked a bit strangely at people who wear masks. I think that's part of it. And I think they're asking us to make that cultural leap. And I think that, look, I think so much has changed this year. I'm not finding it all that difficult. Does anything else feel different to you this time about the oh. about the lockdown? Well, there was an interesting story that the ABC put out. They've been tracking numbers or someone has been tracking numbers in the Burke Street Mall, um, comparing the first lockdown with the second lockdown. And more people have been clocked in the Burke Street Mall this time around, uh, you know, at the height of lockdown, as opposed to what was happening in March and April. And so there's a whole lot of interesting um, evidence that suggests that people this time around are, are really reluctantly staying at home. Now, I would kind of add to that figure, a lot more people are working outside their home because the Premier has said, and and Chief Medical Officer, um, our pin-up man from last year, last week, um, Professor Sutton, has said that we are allowed to go to work, right? That's part of, we can go to work. That's one of the things that we're allowed to do. So the fact that the Burke Street Mall figures are slightly up, that might have something to do with it. But I certainly have observed in our little village where the bookshop is, there's there's more of a reticence, there's more anger um, and, and anguish. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel so much more anxious this time around, um, a little bit pissed off. Um, I think I'm normally a pretty positive person. You get on with, you know, get on with the, the, the blows that life deals you or the hurdles that present, you just get on and do it. I'm having a lot of trouble most mornings finding the upside in this, Cara. What about you? I've, I've, I went through a stage of that last week. I'm a bit better this week, I must say. I, I Look... They've just announced um, 20 consecutive days of football, so I reckon I'm going to be pretty busy. So I am, I'm very fortunate to have that to keep me going. Um, I'm sort of looking hopefully at spring. I think, you know, it's just funny how your um, ambitions change, don't they? You know, a new, northern New South Wales holiday, well, that's gone. Um, even even a mini break, well, that's gone. Now we're setting our sights on Christmas in our house. And, you know, will yeah, we be able to it, see our New South Wales relatives at Christmas? That is such – that's sort of become my new goal. Well, it's it, – it, and, and also each time we take a disappointment on board like that, you just feel a little bit shattered, don't you? Another holiday or another weekend put on hold – uh, you know, another birthday celebration put on hold till next year. And you just keep thinking, well, how many little tiny disappointments can you can you make? I must say, you mentioned work, Caro. I have to say that I feel um, much more um, uh, privileged this time around to be working full time. Last time, I have to admit, I was a bit envious of the people who were at home redoing their linen press and crocheting Afghan squares and making soda bread. Or, or, kept... or, in, fact, or in fact, baskets, as Miss Jane has done this week. You should see oh, it. That's... Yes, showed me that on the screen. Janie, you are a woman of many talents. We, we always say that. That's we'll a, that's a, a G... that, No, we will. That's a GLT coming up. Anyway, no, I think you're right. I, th I think it is. Look, it, it is good to be busy. It is. Let's face it. There's a lot about this that is very boring, and that's the worst thing. And I think probably of all the 
bad things that have happened for the Victorian government over the last week. I think Karen, as she was dubbed from Brighton, was probably the best thing that couldn't happen, could have happened to him because she just came out as... Uh, it was, it's Bruce Matheson's daughter. Did you know that? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the, the, our friend who'd done all of Brighton, it, it sort of it put everything into context for me, anything. I, I, anyway, I don't know about you. Well, look, I, I just uh, I just want to finish this on on the message that you said earlier about you know your your fury with Andrew Bolt, who says said in the Herald Sun this week he no longer trusts the Victorian Premier on anything that the Premier says about COVID nineteen. I mean, for goodness sake, Andrew and and everybody, let's just try and and abide by the rules. Listen to the compelling international medical advice, as you say, Caro, and let's just get on with it so we can get out there again. One of the wor- one of the sad things to have come out of the last week of this sort of general recession, and it was I suppose it was a fairly positive announcement from the federal government this week about job seeker and job keeper and this refusal, smart refusal by the prime minister to even discuss politics or the next election. But people are suggesting that it might be during next year. Um, the closure of Bauer Media, Corrie, and your old stomping ground, Harper's Bazaar, as one of the key one of the key magazines to leave forever. Oh, Caro, so so many memories and so many emotions here. So Bauer Media is closing several of it. It's not actually closing um, officially in Australia. It's a German um, powerhouse media. But eight of its mastheads in Australia, isn't it? Correct. So, as you said, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, which, I mean, I think Elle's a terrific magazine, In Style, which was always, you know, 15 years ago, one of my go-tos when I was trying to do this goes with that and trying to work out how, how, how a work wardrobe works after you've had children and you go back to the workforce but you know men's health magazine women's health they're all they're all really important they all have circulations you know 100,000 200,000 readers and um the the head of um bauer media just said look there was there's just the advertising market has just dropped completely with corona and we just decided that these titles needed to go as a former Melbourne editor of Harper's Bazaar, Caro, when it was launched or, dare I say, relaunched in Australia in 1984, I felt huge sadness um, because at the time, you know, Vogue was at its peak, Vogue Australia, Harper's Bazaar came on the scene. We had Clio, we had Dolly, they've all gone by the wayside. The Australian magazine market was one of the most vigorous per capita in the world. And that was recognised internationally by, uh, you know, media buyers around the world that the Australian market was small, but the average Australian person bought more magazines per capita than most countries in the world. And then, you know, not just fashion magazines, Cara, but, you know, do you remember when the bulletin closed? Yep, yep. How did, I mean, we were all just absolutely devastated. Over 100 years of history just gone. And some, so, of, and some of the great political writers and... It was it was sort of a go to magazine, wasn't it? I mean, Harper's Bazaar was one of my goes to. Um, as a teenager, Dolly was my absolute go to. I absolutely, I was so excited. It was TV Week as a younger child and the Sporting Globe, which was you know twice weekly. But when Dolly used to come out, I was the first one at the newsagent. We all cut out bits of Dolly and stuck them in our school diaries. And oh, yes, gee, and, that was a great magazine we, for a teenager. When we were old enough to to stand in the news agency without looking suspicious and we'd flick through Clio Clio just to get to the centrefold. Sorry, alert. We, Corrie, (laughs) you can occasionally use the word I. I don't refer, I don't recall ever standing in a newsagent surreptitiously looking for the centrefold. 
I can remember so clearly when Cleo first came out. I don't know, was I 10, 11, 12? Can't remember, maybe a bit younger. But I remember being in Disney's news agency in Hampton Street, Hampton, and flicking through trying to find the naked man in the middle. And my mother saw me. I don't know what she was doing, probably off buying Woman's Day or something. That was my favourite, Carol. I used to love Kate Sampiri's advice column. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we all love the old Kate. We did love Kate. She she was a real person too. Well, all I can say is I'm just praying that country style stays and British country life, and that just show. What well, doesn't that show my age? I'd be really well, sad. Well, the interesting thing here. is that there. I, I believe you know me. I'm sort of often a, a, an optimist in in most matters in life. Really, um, tragically, because I'm often wrong. But uh, I was talking to my editor of, at the Domain magazines. As you know, I write for a couple of them. We've been. The, the, the magazines have been on ice since the first lockdown, but they're coming back with a vengeance, which is great. And I was talking to Emily about the opportunities that this might afford, you know, really good uh, insert mag- insert into newspaper magazines such as the Weekend Australian Colour magazine, Domain in the Age, Domain that gets circulated around the suburbs of Melbourne. Um, you know, I think there are still, you know, there's still a market, there's still interest and people love to look at pictures. I know people say Instagram has taken over from glossy mags. But honestly, Caro, if I'm trying to look at a good piece of fashion or, you know, what boots are in for winter, I really do want to see it in a magazine. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy Vogue, but whenever I'm sitting at a hairdresser or, you know, we're a, a dentist surgery and there's a Vogue, I mean, the quality of the photography and, you know, the articles are just easy reads, but I just absolutely love it too. No, and there's a way they capture it and the money, think of the money they used to spend in international shoots, you know, going to the seashells to do the latest summer, you know, swimwear range. I just wonder whether those days are gone forever. We had the launch in 1984, August. We had the Harper's Bazaar launch at the Windsor Hotel. Spare no expense. And there was actually a photograph, you know, social photos. Everybody who was anybody was at that party. There's a terrible, tragic photo of me um, in some taffeta number. We're standing talking to Patrick McCackie, who I think had had a couple of drinks too many. And the caption that the Herald Sun put was Miss Piggy talking to gallery director. Miss Piggy, that was me. What? And my and my daughters wonder why I have such an inferiority complex about my looks. Honestly, I was shattered. But, you know, off, I'm off topic here. I want to get off Miss Piggy and onto footy, Caro. And <laughs> I, I just, I'm aghast I, by that. I think I was living in London at the time or I would have. You were overseas and it was just, it was so horrendous. I had this really wonderful, I think it was a Cara Baker outfit, but I had like a chul wrap. And, you know, I have naturally curly hair. Maybe I did look a bit like Miss Piggy. I don't know, but I thought that was so mean. Um, Wouldn't have been allowed these days. I can never forgive the Herald Sun. Caro, on footy, I just wanted to um, pay tribute to Shane Tuck and send thoughts to all of the Hawthorne community and Richmond and particularly his um, father, his wonderful family, the Tuck family. Shane Tuck, you know, came from such a great pedigree of footballers. His uncle is Gary Ablett Sr. Father Michael Tuck was uh, seven times premiership player for Hawthorne. My hearts are with them. It's so sad. Can you fill us in on um, more detail? Um, oh, look, it was, yeah, it was a, a real shock when the news broke on Monday. I was actually sitting in makeup at Channel 9 when Tony Jones came in and told me. Um, to bring it up to the present day, I think Shane had been really struggling with life after football. He had a brief career as a boxer. Well, not brief, it was a few years, and he went out on a reasonable high there after a really 
bad start. I think he started out on the undercard of a um, Danny Green fight. He, uh, I gather from what I've read and what I've heard, um, his marriage was in a bit of trouble. He was estranged from his wife and two two children. He'd been helped a lot and had been doing a lot with a local football club and working a lot with their um, more challenged footballers. But I'm not sure that he was doing much there at this time. And very, very sadly, he took his own life on Monday. He, he was absolutely loved at Richmond. I mean, he he actually, his last game was Richmond's first final in many years in 2013 against Carlton. If you remember, they were up at, by five goals at halftime mm-hmm. and ended up losing. It was a shattering last game, I guess, for Shane Tuck. I remember him being applauded off the field when the players were also disappointed. He was rejected by Hawthorne and he went and played for a year in South Australia, a year or two, I can't remember, and did really well in the SANFL in the Sandful. Richmond took him back, I think, um, with a rookie selection. He ended up playing 173 games for Richmond and he finished in the top 10 of their best and fairest about five times. He was hard at it, absolutely loved by his teammates. Listening to Jack Revolt speak in, um, on Croc Media's show on Monday night that he does, you know, with mm. Brendan Gale, they were just the, – the news when it broke at Richmond's hub on the Gold Coast was just – well, it just it took me back to Danny Frawley. You know, within a 12-month period, we have these, uh, I mean, you know, Danny went on to have a very successful post-career in the media. But, uh, you know, the mental health of footballers, um, because they're such public figures, we hear about this and we grieve in a way that, um, you know, I know it's the silent killer, depression and anxiety and there are so many people in our community, we just don't know how they're suffering. But goodness gracious, what a lesson to ask people, are you okay? Are you doing okay? Point friends you might fear are, are having a bit of a tough time. Point them in the direction of websites like Beyond Blue and so on. Get people chatting. I don't know what the solution is, Cara, but I was really sort of just gutted to to, to follow this story during the week. Yeah, it's one of um, Australia's great killers and it's probably only worse now that um, a lot of people are in lockdown. As opposed to um, all the football clubs, certainly the Victorian ones, they're all either now living in Perth or Queensland and that's going to go on now, I reckon, to the end of the season. I doubt we'll get a, an AFL game in Victoria, certainly not before the finals and that's looking pretty unlikely as well. Been a couple of vexing issues for the AFL this week. I think that the teams are largely adapting to hub life, although some players are are struggling. A lot of them have got their families living in quarantine at the moment. Um, First, there was Jordan Ngoi playing for Collingwood last Thursday night. We knew this was going to happen. I'd been sort of um, privately briefed by the AFL as to why they were allowing him to play, even though he's now been charged with indecent assault, an historic case going back to 2015. But watching him play, and I mean, it was just a, a force of circumstances that he was probably best on ground, played his best game in a couple of years, kicked five goals, had been out because he'd been in an extra quarantine because he had had to, of course, go to a police station to to be charged. It was really uncomfortable watching him. Um, poor old, poor Bruce McAvaney made the, you know, unfortunate well, comment about he'd had a hiccup. He had to yes. apologise at the but end of the game. Bruce did apologise. Bruce was very quick off the mark to apologise for that. Yeah, but it only highlighted again the lack of leadership, I reckon, by the AFL in not putting out some form of explanation as to why he was playing. Now, you understand the legal process might run for 18 months, so you're ending someone's prime of their career effectively and they might be innocent. Um, I understand that um, this charge 
faces a maximum prison term, I think, of 10 years. It's not yep. under under the NRL rules. There's a rule that you immediately stood down if you're facing a charge that faces a minimum of 11 years. There's been a lot of talk comparing the two policies. Look, this has been very embarrassing for the AFL, and I think at the very least they should have put out some form of explanation. Then further embarrassment and really very disturbing was the news that they'd been um, forcing Indigenous Australians, Indigenous footballers and staff and their families arriving in Queensland to live in hubs to have this pneumococcal vaccination, which white players were not required to have. It was a complete stuff up by the AFL. But we don't know whether to point the finger at Peter Harcourt, the medical officer who told clubs it was mandatory for Indigenous players. He's saying that that was his understanding from the Queensland government. It wasn't there. It wasn't mandatory. It was only recommended. And Hawthorne and Melbourne players blew the whistle. And um, the AFL were really disappointed this story was exposed. They wanted to they wanted to cover it up. They didn't want it to get out into the public. It was always going to get out, Caro, wasn't it? Well, the first crop of players, clubs who went up, the players had the injections and they thought, I think the Indigenous players, I'm told, that everyone was getting it. Yeah, and you know, yeah. the deep cultural sensitivities around this issue are so obvious when you look at in you know Aboriginal history and what think what was done to them over decades and centuries, I just cannot understand how they got this so wrong. Anyway, that's a live story. There was a meeting. There has been a meeting just a few hours before we're talking today between all the medical officers and Tanya Hosh, the AFL's executive in charge of all all matters inclusion. And I think there's a lot of embarrassed people at the AFL at the moment. So. So, yeah, so that's what's facing the AFL at the moment. But the good news is that there is going to be a big escape over 20 days of footy. Some of it will be wallpaper, as our friend Craig Hutchison calls it. But some of it's going to be absolutely brilliant. And how clubs respond to four or five day breaks is going to be really interesting. So how are you going to prepare yourself for that, Kaz? You, like, you just um, Pretty easy. Down. Turn on the TV. <laughs> it's not very hard. Anyway, there are a few of the issues this week. It is now time for BSF, Books, Screen and Food. Um, thanks again to Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. We really appreciate the support you've given us, Red Energy, over the last four months. Call 131806 for real Aussie energy and tell them Caro and Corrie sent you. Now, Corrie, you're going to tell us about your latest Kate Grenville book, From the Pile by Your Bed. This is from the pile by the bed, Carol, and it's just come out in the last couple of weeks, A Room Made of Leaves by Kate Grenville. Kate Grenville, of course, is a um, well-known, award-winning Australian writer. She's in her 60s. Uh, People will remember her for The Secret River was probably her best-known one, The the Lieutenant or Lieutenant, however you want to say it. Lieutenant. Um, uh, well, it depends, I suppose. If you're American, you'd say lieutenant, wouldn't you? I've never understood why that is always like that. Are we Americans, uh, Corrie? We're Australians. We say I'm lieutenant. Not, okay, fair enough. Um, so, well, that brings in the colonial theme there, Caro, because this is very much the, <laughs> the story of Elizabeth and John MacArthur, a couple who met in Devon and um, uh, come to Australia. And, of course, they found together Australia's marine, merino wool industry. Um, they don't come in the first fleet, but it's almost like the second or third. And they have a pretty tough time in old Sydney town until John connives his way into acquiring some land uh, where Parramatta is now. 
and of course puts together this extraordinary um, holding of land and instead of killing the sheep that come on the on the various ships from England, killing them for their meat and breeding them for their meat, he and Elizabeth decide to actually go into the wool industry and the rest is history. What Kate Grenville has done, Carol, is pretty cheeky. She has imagined the diary of Elizabeth MacArthur and wow, oh, wow, what a, what a marriage they had, according to Kate Grenville. Um, but Elizabeth is certainly the hero in this story. Um, Kate Grenville presents her Elizabeth as a as an inquiring, um, uh, curious, nature loving, and really uh, instinctively savvy farmer. To be honest, and John Moore is just an ambitious asshole. I can't really think of a better way to describe him. Um, I do uh, refer potties to Michelle Scott Tucker's most excellent biography of Elizabeth MacArthur, which came out a couple of years ago. Have you read this one, Carol? No, I haven't, but I've heard about it, and I'd love to read both. Yeah, a companion the, read to go, I guess, with a room made full of right made of yeah, leaves. They're beautiful companion pieces. The Elizabeth MacArthur: A Life at the Edge of the World. Michelle Scott Tucker, who is a country Victoria writer. Um, spent quite a few years investigating the life of Elizabeth MacArthur. This is a really compelling biography. It's one of the most important biographies, I believe, in recent years on Australian history and Australian characters. So the two work really well together. I loved uh, Kate Grenville's book. It is only in hardcover at the moment, Caro, so that makes it a little more expensive than a paperback edition. And I'm sure the publishers, text publishing will be bringing out a paperback version next year. But do yourself a favour, as Molly Meldrum would say, and really um, put this on your Christmas list or your birthday list or just say, you know what, hang it, it's lockdown. I'm going to spend my 40 bucks on this really wonderful novel. You'll love it, Carol. You'll absolutely love it. It's great. Well, um, I, I yeah. too I too have um, started attacking the pile by my bed and um, I'm having a lovely time doing it. Corrie, um, we were going to talk about Love, Sarah, the one film that we managed to see individually during that brief happy period when we were allowed to go back to the movies, but we're going to put that off for a while because no one can go and see it at the moment. So I have been diving into, with my son who loves, um, he's, he has a film club and I've watched some very obscure films, but last week we had we were going to watch Jack Nicholson in The Passenger, um, which is Jack, very early Jack, playing a, a journalist in Africa. It looks absolutely brilliant. But I wanted to watch, which I've never seen, Carnal Knowledge. Mike Nichols, if it's not his first film, very early. I, uh, I just cannot believe that this film would survive in 2020. It is... Very you interesting. Mean, from political correctness point oh, of view. It, it is very interesting historically, and it's amazing to see such a young Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel, his partner in crime. It's sort of, I suppose... Which is such an unusual mix, Carol. Well, I suppose it's a buddy movie gone sour. It starts either in the late 40s or early 50s and spans their friendship and obsession with women and sex up until the 1970s. The women involved are... are Really young and beautiful Candace Bergen, a really beautiful Anne Margaret, and and the blokes are pretty good too, by the way. And and later on in the show, a couple of other actresses, but memorably in a in a memorable sort of final scene, Rita Marino. Jack Nicholson's character is so odious; it was difficult to watch. Every woman is a ball buster. Um, some of the discussion about, I mean, some of the 
the words, I mean, I can't believe the ongoing use of the C word in the early 70s. Wonderful use of um, screen in that there are a lot of close-ups where you look at the character's face, Candace Bergen in one scene laughing at the two blokes while stuff's going on behind the scenes. It is awful to watch the way some of these women are treated, just awful. And while in the end you see the message that Mike's trying to deliver, I just don't know how it would stand up in today's market, even as an historic piece. So we thought on our little chat the other day that we'd talk about movies that just now we know what we know and feel the way we feel just don't really work anymore. Well, when you were reminding me of the Jack Nicholson film and we were chatting about it, I thought of um, I was I had just come off hot off the the podcast listening press. I'd been listening to uh, Homo Sapiens, which is one of my new favourite podcasts. I'll talk about in GLT, and uh, I'm a bit I'm a bit late to the program, I have to say, because it it is up to series four of Homo Sapiens. But um, Chris Sweeney was talking about um, Indecent Proposal. You remember that rather average film with Robert Redford and Demi Moore um, and Woody Harrelson, who (laughs) is just so miscast. But Robert Redford's the millionaire who offers Woody Harrelson a million dollars to sleep with Woody's wife, being Demi Moore. And um, And they need the money. (laughs) Yeah, they need the money because, um, yeah, because Woody is a, a struggling architect. He's poured all of their fortune into a half built house and a land deal and how he ends up going to Vegas I think he borrows money from his father or something to take his wife on one last trip and he and Demi arrive at Los in Las Vegas and Robert Redford's there and offers the million dollar deal which of course they Woody Harrelson takes up accepts and the marriage goes south at, you know they get back together at the end of the film I'm not I'm, I'm even going to spoiler do alert No, totally, because you just don't want to watch Indecent Proposal, anyone. You've got better things to do. But getting back to Homo Sapiens, um, podcaster Chris Sweeney was talking with Alan Cumming, the other co-host, about this film. And he just, Chris said, it's just riddled with problems. And it really, really is. And it just made me think about how many films, I mean, going back to Woody Allen's Manhattan Carol, do you remember? Great great film at the time. Yeah, it was, well, Woody Allen's love interest was Mariel Hemingway, who was the schoolgirl in the film. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And, and and even, I hate to say it, because we just adored her at the time, but Pretty Woman. I mean, when you look at the premise now, that, you know, yeah. um, this sort of notion that um, a down-and-out woman who is, you know, well, let's face it, she's a prostitute, is going to be saved by this rich man. I mean, it is just, it, it's, no, that it's really difficult. It's like I keep saying, you go back and watch Love Story now on so many levels, that film has changed for me. It is just so wrong in so many ways, including the sort of sexist nature of it and the way they live. Well, thank God, in a way, Hollywood's grown up, and thank God we have too. But uh, I got onto a website following yours and my conversation the other day, a, a website that talks about films in the in the 20th century that you just couldn't make these days, and they referred to Blazing Saddles. There were about 18 different points where, they, where the Mel Brooks comedy, and even an interview with Mel Brooks they included, where he says, I wouldn't be able to write that these days, you know. But there's this, just this really, I mean, there's an hilarious scene. I went onto YouTube and there's this scene where Harvey Keitel, if you remember, not Harvey Keitel, um, Harvey, oh, God, what was his name? He was in the Carol Burnett show. I'll think of it in a second. Hilarious. And he's, Harvey he's Gorman? In, no. Uh... That's. Harvey Cor- was it Harvey Corman? Yeah, yeah I, think I think that was it. his name. Yep. 
And, he, and he's, he's playing the role of a casting director for um, a, a Western that's being made in Hollywood. And, you know, different people are coming up, you know, with their guns and their hats, you know, going, I can play this role, I can play this role. And he says to one guy, what are your qualifications? And this guy says, rape, murder, arson and rape. And Harvey says, you said rape twice. And the guy says, I like rape. And the whole crowd laughs like that's the gag. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I, I really... Caro, I was appalled to see that they included Tootsie, one of my five favourite movies ever, the 1982 Dustin Hoffman film where, you know, he plays um, he plays a, plays a woman to get a, a role. And um, that, that apparently is really offended. Well, I mean, I think it probably does offend all of us really that the straight white dude taking a female role simply because he's convinced that he's too good to keep to keep on missing out on acting jobs so he's going to dress up as a woman. And Dustin Hoffman did a really interesting interview after Tootsie saying it was a real eye-opener for him because he learnt what it was like to be an unattractive woman and how hard it must be. Anyway, now, Corrie, um, if you get a chance, check out Carnal Knowledge. It is fascinating, but very, it's gut-wrenching too. Now, I... Do you have a crush, Caro? Oh, no, we got, we're on to food. I do we? have Sorry. a crush, but I've, I'm on food first. We, BSF, Corrie, F for food, Sorry. which Sorry, is very important in these lockdown days, particularly if you're doing dry July as well. Now, I went back to Good Weekend, which you did last week with your spicy tuna pasta. This week, Karen Martini did a glazed pork with black vinegar and woodier fungus. Now, it sounds tricky. It was the easiast thing because, dear claims... I can't wait to hear where you got your wood ear fungus from. The mushroom man at the Paran Market. Where else? Damien. Have you been seeing those ads on Instagram and Facebook and everything for earwax, people pulling earwax out of their ears? Sorry, that was just suddenly mud. They are the worst ads. They creep into your feed. I don't know where they come from. But they come out, they're they're, they're like earwax. It's about... I don't know, five centimetres long. If anybody else has seen it, seen What's it, that got to do with it? my Karen Martini recipe, that, please? That, that, just pop, that just popped up into my head. <laughs> so when you mentioned the woodier, this, go on. Well, anyway, woodier fungus is actually like, it, it was called black fungus and you just chuck it in at the end with this. It's essentially for, well, for four people, for, it says four to six people, but I halved it and it was perfect for two people. So I don't know where she got the six. I think it's definitely a four-person recipe. Four pork belly ribs. They're not huge. Get your butcher to cut them into six. My mum called them pork spare ribs when we were growing up. We absolutely love them. I know that sounds a bit unhealthy, but there is no, this is the most healthy recipe. Everything else, it just involves ginger, spring onions, shaosong wine, just that sort of Chinese cooking wine, which we happen to have. It says dark soy and light soy. I used... Um, um, what's that, light soy, tamari instead of light soy because I didn't have um, light soy sauce. A cassia bark stick, buy that from your Asian grocer. Star anise, have it in your spice cupboard. White pepper, have it in your cupboard for every Christmas when you bring it out to make bread sauce. The woody of fungus, the only um, rogue ingredient, and Karen always has a rogue ingredient, as Anna from the op shop would say, it's called chinkiang vinegar. Well, of course, we had that in our cupboard. And you serve it with um, Asian... You show off you. You serve it with Asian greens. Oh, my God. This is the most beautiful recipe. It is so easy. It didn't take me long at all to cook. The only sort of slow bit is when you actually leave it, when you put the... um, uh, what what you might call it, the pork belly back in and cook it with this beautiful sauce and reduce it. It was so beautiful. Serve it with steamed greens and basmati or jasmine or any rice. Absolutely delicious. Last week's Good Weekend, Miss Jane will put it on the show notes. 
very quickly, Corrie, before you tell us what you're grumpy about, I'm just going to say my crush is so easy this week. I didn't realise Chris Wallace had it in him. I've just, I cannot stop watching that interview with Donald Trump. It is so, it is hilarious. It is embarrassing. It's chilling. It's frightening to think and you know, four late night shows in America spent the entire show dissecting it later on that night, particularly when he said it had that incredibly hard IQ test, the one where you have to pick an elephant and count backwards from 100 by 7. And Chris, and, and Chris goes 93. <laughs> that was just absolute. I mean, Fox News did a great job with that interview. And if, they, if, if America votes Donald Trump back, well, I mean, that is just a reason. I, I hate to say I'd never go to America again, but it is just terrifying to think that man is in charge of what was once the world's most powerful nation. Anyway, that is BSF. That is my crush. Thank you again to Red Energy for all your support. Corrie, what are you grumpy about? Caro, I'm grumpy about uh, the disappearance of theage.com.au. I don't know whether you – you probably don't do a lot of Googling of the age because you no doubt have it delivered into your inbox, you know, as one of the perks of being a uh, employee of the company. I'm actually not anymore, but um, whether it's a Channel 9 thing, I'm not sure. What If you Google theage.com.au, what happens? No, well, it's more, Caro, if you're searching for something, what comes up is the Sydney Morning Herald, smh.com.au, never the age or hardly ever the age. So, for example, remember last week, as you mentioned, I did the Neil Perry uh, um, recipe for the spicy tuna. Yep. I didn't have the cutout with me at the time of our podcast. So this time last week, I went in, Neil Perry, you know, put all the correct words and everything, and up pop SMH, SMH, SMH. Now, I know Good Weekend magazine appears in both newspapers, but honestly, really? And then last night, I thought I better get my head around the coronavirus update in Victoria because Carol and I will be talking about it, put in Daniel Andrews and lockdown, Here's what came into my news feed, ABC News, two entries, The Guardian, The SMH, The Herald Sun and The Australian in that order. I went on to the next page of Google, theage.com.au still wasn't there. We've lost our brand, Caro. We are Melburnians and we are losing before our very eyes. We are losing the age. It is This happens time and time again to me, and I just thought last night, you know what, I'm going to talk about it because the number of times I go on to to find a story or find a piece of information, the age is not there for me, the Melbourneian, and I think, gosh, that pisses me off, but I never talk about it. I am now. I am furious. Why is Channel 9 or whoever owns the age these days, why have they trashed this most wonderful Melbourne brand? Well, Fairfax was doing this um – it's been going on for years, actually, several years. But you just need to have the Age app on your phone. And that's what well, all lo- well, loyal yeah. Age listeners do. And you don't need to work for the Age to do that. And if you Google theage.com.au, all the Age stories come up. Well, they don't always, carry. That's the whole thing. No, no, I mean, you Google yeah, theage.com.au, the you Age can, stories come well, up. You can Google the age.com and the age itself comes up. That's absolutely right. But if you're looking for a particular story and you don't put in the age right? What comes up is the Sydney Morning Herald, even with a Melbourne story. So it's just, I, get it. I just, 
I, I just don't want to be reading the Sydney Morning Herald on on the Victorian lockdown. Thanks very much, everybody. Anyway, that's what I'm really grumpy about. Bring back my age.com.au. Okay, Caro, six quick questions. My first question to you. Have the release of the palace letters changed your stand on Australia as a republic? Yes, very simply, oh. they have. I, I've always... Um, I've been a bit not ambivalent towards a Republican movement, but I, I just sort of didn't feel that strongly about it either way. And now I, I understand that I understand all the different issues and did the Queen know anything? Well, the the Governor General was dealing with her private secretary. Now she's the Queen's she or he was the Queen's private secretary. So that tells me that Buckingham Palace or their representative, sacked the Prime Minister. Now, I don't feel comfortable about that at all. I know we've all felt very uncomfortable about this for years, and hello, it's it was a long, long time ago. But now that we've actually seen the correspondence, I, I just think that was a big pick-up for me. Not that he did it without telling the Queen, but that he was consulting with the Palace in the lead-up to and being advised about what to do. So, yes, I, I don't think that's right. I think we need to become a republic and that that has been the final nail in the coffin for me cory what's your favorite titbit even though we are hopefully going to become a republic one day from um, beatrice york's wedding i love the way these questions follow one another I yeah know. bring on the republic but don't take away our hello magazine about the royal family uh caro there aren't enough titbits actually they've been really really the buckingham palace and the house of york and everybody's been very quiet about this wedding. Of course, um, Be Princess Beatrice married um, Eduardo Mapelli Mozzi, um, who is uh, uh, an Italian uh, millionaire, uh, on the weekend. And that was very exciting for her, but not for followers of Hello and Royal Family News, because they have only released so far just four photographs, and there are no tidbits. The only thing I kind of was drawn to was that Wolfie, Wolfie is the four-year-old son of Eduardo from a previous relationship. Wolfie was the four-year-old best man. The bride, as we know, wore a Norman Hartnell dress of the Queen's that she, uh, Beatrice, rather cleverly, I thought she looked very sweet. She altered it. But I was more interested in the fact that she wore the, the Queen Mary Diara, which was actually worn by the Queen in her wedding to Prince Philip in 1947. I thought that was very, very telling, Caro, particularly when we consider the pickle that Prince Andrew, Beatrice's father, is in at the moment, the Queen showing solidarity there with her granddaughter. And not one and photo of Andrew from the wedding. No wedding. And no, well, no photo of Fergie yet, to be fair, as well. But, yes, definitely, Andrew did walk her down the aisle. We know this. There were only 20 guests. And then the other interesting little tidbit, I thought the bouquet, which was jasmine, uh, sweet pea, garden roses and so on, after the wedding, um, as is the custom, and I didn't realise this of royal brides, the bouquet was placed on the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey after the service. Did you know they did that? No, I didn't, but I saw it and I thought, yeah, I thought, no, very nice touch. Love the flowers outside the church wall, um, the church door. No, she looked great. Good on her. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know what to say. Prince Andrew um, clearly needs to cooperate with the authorities. He deserves to go to his daughter's wedding, but he now, now he needs to get into a bit of trouble. Um, now, Caro, in July 1970, which is 50 years ago, Close to You by The Carpenters reached number one on the Billboard Top 100. How do you feel about Karen and Richard Carpenter? Well, very sad that she died so young, obviously. 
and um, he she had an eating disorder, and um, I think she died from an issue relating to that. I love the Carpenters. I adored the Carpenters. I adored Close to You. I adore On Top of the World. There are so many wonderful songs by the Carpenters, and I could play them all day long. She had the most beautiful voice, and their harmonies were unique. So that's how I feel about the Carpenters, Corrie. And Uh, the fact that that song is 50 years old makes me feel very old. Now, give us three quick take-homes from Mary Trump's new book. Well, look, I've read it and there aren't three. There are about 50 or 60 or 70. So I'm not going to go into any of them, Carol. I'm just going to say that this book by uh, Mary Trump, who is the 55-year-old daughter of Fred Trump Jr., who was Donald Trump's older brother. Fred Trump uh, couldn't cut it as far as the old man was concerned in the family business. He turned to alcohol. He died in 1981, tragically, at the age of 42, and he struggled with alcoholism much of his life. He was bullied. Mary's father, Fred, was bullied terribly by Fred Sr. Anyway, she, in, in this book, Mary Trump, who is a psychologist and uh, a well-respected one in the area of trauma, has written a terrific book. It really is so accessible about... Uh, her uncle Donald and why he is unfit for the office of president of the United States. All I can say is go out there and read it, Potties, if you are interested in this particular topic. This could be the book because it is so accessible. It could be, the, and they sold nearly a million copies on day one, Carol, in the United States. This could be the one that cut through, cuts through to middle America and traditional Trump land, and it could be the game changer for the president. Who knows? Anyway, I am a huge fan of this book. I couldn't put it down. I read it in three sittings. Caro, what is your favourite winter fruit to cook with? Oh, definitely pears. Very boring, very pedestrian, people might say. Boring. I love I love eating them. I love cooking with them. They poach beautifully. I made that fam- the the tart the the cake that we've been making a lot over lockdown, the apple and raspberry cake, works brilliantly with pears. I made it yesterday, as a matter of fact. And Carol, did you like my photograph I sent you and Jeff Slattery with the persimmon and pear crumble I made the other night? Yeah, it, look, I, I think it probably tasted better than it looked, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> it was a funny brown colour. But yeah. persimmons don't look all that attractive when you cook them up. Whereas poached pears, particularly if um, you throw in a bit of this and a bit of that, a bit of cinnamon stick, a bit of star anise or vanilla bean, it, they are so beautiful. I absolutely love pears. Now, last question. What is slob chic style and how does one get it? Uh, well, you read The New Yorker uh, from earlier this month. They had a terrific article on slob chic style which is all part of the coronavirus lockdown and so on. And the kicker line was, what to wear when there's nobody to dress up for except your cat and Zoom. So there's lots of discussions about what people should be wearing. Ugg boots, the Australian product, get a mention. And slippers, beautiful slippers, which I immediately thought of my Will and Lib's um, Monty slippers. I thought velvet slippers, nothing like them. Um, Oversized T-shirts. A big caro night shirts. Now, apparently, men have been buying lots of night shirts in America. Um, they wear them because they've usually they're they're silk. They might have a nice collar, and they can just have their little undies underneath when they do a Zoom meeting. No one need know what's going on underneath. I suppose really, the author of this article says that a friend of 
purse has 11 pairs of black leggings, has been wearing them every day during lockdown. And her favourite pair was from J. Crew, which we better jump in because J. Crew just filed for bankruptcy a couple of weeks ago. So it's a really funny article. It does make you squirm a bit because you realise, oh my God, that's what I look like. But um, yeah, really, really fun article, that one. I don't mean to be rude, but slob chick style just sounds like slob. And I think I've been dressing like that for decades. That is the show today. Thank you to our podcast supporter, Red Energy, again. Thanks for your feedback and comments. Thank you, Corrie. Thank you, Jane. Please send your feedback, comments, tips and suggestions to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. Don't forget our bonus GLT episode will drop on Saturday. You can follow us on Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod. We tweet, just join at Don't Shoot Pod. And you can email us, feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Footy tips are coming up. Thank you, Miss Jane and Corrie. Don't shoot the messenger, Caro. If you love an insightful podcast, Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series is for you. Cooking, enjoy Tuesday with Ash Pollard. Really, the people around here truly lived farm to table. I know it's trendy now, but it was necessity back then. The parents, Mum Plus One with Joe Stanley. At the height of coronavirus lockdown, I gave up on all screen time restrictions. Powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Red Energy's lifestyle podcast available from your podcast provider and the SEN app.